Myself. My name is Max. You've got a few others in the room. You've got Alex Gornett and Jamie McDonald. We're all here, and, uh, and again, thank you for joining us. Yeah, cool. And so, Coach Rashid, we, you know, obviously this U.S. Open now in the books. We saw Djokovic take out Del Potro, six three seven six six three. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about the winner to unforced error ratio for Del Potro. Our consensus was that Delpo was not aggressive enough from the get go. Would you agree with that assessment? Um, I, I don't, no, I probably wouldn't. To be honest, to be honest, I mean, I think when you look at when you look at the winners and unforced errors, yeah, there's. I mean, you can look at those numbers, but I think you look at who he's playing up the other end of the court, the way Novak's able to drink the court, the way he's able to defend some of the. I mean, some of that, some of the stuff that was coming from Del Potro, who was throwing the kitchen sink at him. I thought uh, probably playing too much. In mind, I thought he played too much through the court. He was trying to sort of smash through him and, and probably could have taken some pace off the ball, spread, tried to spread Novak a little bit before he was going big through the court at times and just to change it up. But, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's hard when, you, when you've got Novak up the other end until you're out there courtside or on, on top of the court watching what Novak can do to you up the other end. It can maybe paint a little different picture um, and you've got to... You got to understand how. I mean, he probably would have had against a lot of other players. You know, the, the winner ratio probably would have would have climbed uh, enormously. The unforced errors probably would have reduced himself because Novak makes you play that second and third and fourth extra ball on defense. And also, I think the court speed has a lot to do with it as well because it it is slower. It was definitely slower, so I was pulling up the ball, and uh, it was very hard also to to you know to get a high. Uh, winner to unforced error ratio as well, purely because of the course speed. I mean, if that was on a fast surface, a traditional fast US Open speed court of yesteryear, and also maybe a grass court, I mean, those those winners would have been, you know, that would have been off, you know, would have been a really big number. So you definitely sound like you've uh, you've seen Djokovic play a lot of tennis, and you like his game. So was this a result that you were expecting today? Oh, I thought I thought the way I watched Novak climb back up um, and have and resurrect his uh, career after being injured um, and dealing with a lot of you know putting his coaching team back together and and getting back to the traditional fundamentals of what made him the tennis player where he dominated there for a period of time. I could see that coming back in. I could see the look in his eye. I could see the physicality behind it. What he's prepared to do on the tennis court as far as his defence. Uh, you know, when they actually survived the rally, that sort of hunginess was slowly creeping in the more he was actually able to trust his body and then his game coming together. So when you saw that, you know, I, I just, you know, for me it was a matter of time where he was going to be that extremely tough competitor to play uh, point to point. And, and you know, when you look at both these players, Delpo had to, he had to try and, uh, he had to try and knock him out. There's no doubt about that because... 
you're playing one of the best returners in the game. The amount of times, you know, Delpo at the first set was serving way up there, about 82% of balls, and you know, but they were all, you know, but he was he lost the first set, so the, the number of balls that were coming back, um, you know, was was enormous as well. So it just builds constant pressure. He was back building this enormous amount of pressure on his opponent, and, and you know, we saw it through Wimbledon. Uh, we saw glimpses of it through the clay court season, but it was gathering momentum and, and through the belief system of, of what he's actually been able to put in the bank in, in his past, but also what he was generating and actually his body was allowing him to do. Uh, you know, we could, I could see this, this sort of tennis coming back and he, and he proved it through the fortnight as well. Hey, Roger. Alex Gornett here. Uh, I think we would all agree with you over here. That's a perfect analysis of the match. Um, and I'm going to switch gears on you here a little bit. Um, in terms of just your coaching resume, we looked over. It's impressive what you've done with the players you've worked with. And I think you've garnered the respect of not only the players you worked with, but the tour as a whole. Um, and it speaks volumes when they selected you to be a board member of the ATP World Tour. And we, want, we wanted to know what sort of vision do you have for the ATP moving forward um, in terms of the global brand as well as what, what are the players seeking to see changed on the tour? And that takes a time. We're coaching... Uh, you know, I'm not coaching at the moment because I, I need to spend some time home with my daughter. So after 15 years on the road, so but you know, so I'm sort of more of on the part-time space as far as weeks travelled now. So um, and that was that was something that I was uh, keen to do, even though I love the coaching. I will get back into that um, for sure. Uh, I'm helping uh, other coaches out and some players and consulting and uh, and looking at that to, looking at that space, but. Uh, you know, being on the board, you know, I love the, I love the behind the scenes, the working, you know, the, the mechanics of what actually puts this whole tennis circus together, I suppose, this is a travelling circus as we are. And, uh, you know, from a player's perspective, I mean, it's just about obviously growing the game. We, you know, we're there as players. We want to grow the game for the players and also the fans and also, you know, the ATP. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a great brand and it's uh, evolving and we're trying to find ways to making the product uh, more appealing obviously to the younger generation that are coming up as well. We're obviously in a competitive market uh, with not only other sports uh, but also you know the, the IT space as well which, which takes a lot of kids out of you know out of, out of the physicality of, of I think of sport and puts them in front of the screen. So we're, so we're sort of looking at you know ways that then I think the next gen uh, concept was fantastic from the ATP from the guys there from Chris Commode. Ross Hutchins, you know, guys who actually sort of saw that vision. I think that's been really uh, an evolution. It's been really exciting to watch that that crew up. And then, then it's you know, so building you're building the big events up, which were done well with the Master Series, and also um, looking at the 250s and 500s and seeing how we can make them uh, big parts of the uh, the model moving forward as well. So just always, you know, the, the you know the ATP, the guys, the executive team, obviously the players, player council. Uh, always, you know, trying to work ways of actually making the game uh, better for everybody. Um, the players are obviously there looking for the play, looking out for the players, but they're also looking out for the health of the sport as well. And that's, you know, you have to give a big kudos to that. Is that uh, they're very proactive in looking out for the for the health of our sport as well. Yeah, absolutely. And we got a question for you that we've asked a few other people throughout the day, but uh, you would know better than anyone after coaching a lot of the top guys, kind of the struggles of being in the player's box and not being able to coach on the court. And obviously the WTA now allows coaching. Uh, obviously, you know, college allows coaching. Uh, do you think that this is something that should be brought to the ATP side? And, you know, kind of talk about, uh, for the people listening, the struggles of not being able to coach on court. 
look, I, uh, I, I see I see the space of coaching. The discussion's been happening for a long time now, and, and on the ATP side and, and the coaches uh, coaches um, association as well. We've, we speak about that a lot um, in our meetings as well. And uh, I, look, I, I love the gladiatorial role that tennis plays. Uh, don't you know? I really see that as a massive benefit in our game. That we are a sport where you just you get out there and you work it out, you problem solve yourself, and that's part of the education, not being spoon fed um, every point or every game. You know, information because you sort of become robotic, and, and I don't like that in uh, in life in general. I think there's a lot of lessons, great lessons to be learned on a tennis court because of that gladiatorial role. So. Um, and, yeah, and that's part of the strength of, I think it's part of the strength of being a great sports person as well, is the fact that you can actually problem solve yourself, you know, in the, in the reality of live entertainment right there and then you can actually see some clarity. I mean, when I was coaching Lake Hewitt, his, his most clearest moments were under extreme duress where he could actually see and you could see his mind working out ways to survive and stay in, you know, in a five-set match if he got down and actually turn things around. Uh, yeah, I would say things to him at times, for sure. Um, there's, you know, there's encouragement, you know, there's encouragement said, uh, you know, and yeah, there's a, there's a rule in place that there is no coaching, and if you do actually cross that boundary, uh, there is a code violation. Well, so you can do two things with that, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, but there's two things you can do in that opinion if you're if you're that group. You can actually, which I'd suggest, that, you know, I mean, if you do get done for a code violation, okay, you you've got the slap on the wrist, but it should never affect the player and what they're doing on the tennis court because you should have a relationship between you. That if that actually happens and an umpire does, you know, suggest that or make that assessment, or well, it shouldn't affect the rest. It shouldn't be a snowball effect and affect the rest of your match play. So because you've decided between you that there might be some interaction. So you've decided you're prepared to cross the line, and this is what the reality will be if you actually are caught out. And you just you've got to you've got to pay that and respect that and actually move on. And so I think there's the grey area. So the argument is, do we just open it up? Well, yes, you could just say it's opened up, but what does that look like? Do we want people on the court? I know the WTA do it. I don't like it um, because I think it's fought with danger as well because we've seen scenes where it hasn't been healthy um, in, with the interaction. We see some really good interaction, and we see a lot of stuff which is not that healthy. I love the fact that you know if you're you're looking at coaching that maybe that it's used by headsets where a couple of times in the, uh, a set or at the end of sets you could actually um, you could actually put a headset on which we tried at the next gen in uh, at the end of the year last year with the, with the men and it worked really well and you could talk to your coach through a headset system which is very similar to like Formula One um, I think that's a controlled banner I think it it, it may be a good option uh, moving forward but I'm not a fan of actually being on the court walking around the court and actually sitting down and actually having that discussion with the player you make a very compelling case and uh, Max Rothman is singing your praises right now yeah, I'm, I'm over As, here uh, my hands are there <laughs> <answer, yeah. laughs> uh, you made some really good points there we, we, we'd love to get your take on another topic we've been discussing all day is um, a lot of people are up in arms about the three out of five format. Do you see any changes coming to three out of five, or maybe let's say maybe not three out of five, but uh, we loved the trial at the next gen finals with the fast four format. Do you see that getting implemented in more tournaments next year, um, or what is the ATP's position on the scoring change? Uh, look, I, if, I, if I take a personal position and and <laughs> That's my sorry, sorry, personal hat on, position. Uh, yeah, I'll, uh, it, in, in in this in this sense is that. 
you know, three best of five in the, in Grand Slams. I love them. Uh, again, I see, you know, you've got to, you've got to also got to work out that if you did an average of the matches played and calculated how many sets, are, you know, how far we're going. It's, I mean, I was Australian Open last year, uh, or this year, I think it was, you know, it was 3.4 uh, was the best, you know, it was the average outcome of the best of five set matches in the first week, and it was or 3.3, and then it went to 3.5 um, sets played in the second week. So it's not as if these matches are all going to five sets and they're all going to extreme spaces. So, yeah, I have a good, you know, there's a, there's a, good, uh, there's a good conversation around, is there a tie break at six all in the fifth? I like it if it's extended a little bit. It doesn't need to go, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's ten all, uh, maybe it's eight all, you know, just to give it a little bit, of, uh, little bit more meat on the bone right at the end. Uh, but obviously not extending all the way through where you've got these massive final sets which might physically take someone out you know in two days time but you know there's a few things with five set tennis matches is that you know it actually it's it keeps you honest uh it works in different elements of, of being the athlete it actually you've got to have a conditioning uh, level that's actually going to be superior so you can sustain seven lots of five set matches so if you go into a grand slam and if you think you're an opportunity to win one of these things well you better have your preparation right so it makes you accountable to the process um, and it's a great problem-solving event. You know, you can't... It's just one of these... I, I think it's one of the great tools of our sport. I, I can't see the, the Grand Slams ever reducing it uh, to best of three. I, I would... Do, because we've got to have something that sits there and that stands out. And I think the Grand Slam uh, best of five is, is the way to go. If you look at the, the next gen and, and we talk about the best of five, first of four, I really enjoyed that concept. Uh, I like the way... It always it was very engaging from the first point. It meant a lot. You couldn't actually you couldn't warm up and, and lead into the into that set. You know there was no room for real error. A lot of the more excitement moments and also a lot more tie breaks that were played. Um, and the time duration of the matches was quite quick. I mean the five sets took roughly around the one and a half hour mark. Uh, it went to two hours as a as a match on a couple of the matches. Um, so you sort of got real. I like that. You know, is there something that could be implemented, for example, in the 250s tournaments right across the board? Could we actually not not use it as a trial, but do something quite dynamic in that space? I'm not sure. It's, you know, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, it could be a position where the 250 tournaments, which are our smaller um, tournaments, you know, maybe we, we add some, you know, we try that and actually throw some excitement in there and, and see where that sort of goes because... Um, you know, that, that, that may be a possibility. I'm not sure, you know, there's a bit of, you know, there's some discussion around the table, obviously. You've got to throw all the darts on the dartboard and see what makes a little bit of sense and who's, who's prepared to run with it. Oh, I, I think that's totally fair. And, Coach, again, this is Alex Gruskin, the other AG of the CR squad, not to confuse you. And I should say, in terms of tournament formats, I was born in 1995. Maybe you can hear that from this alto tone. Uh, but so I, I never really understood the satellite circuit. That just went above my head. But I do understand the challenger circuit. And I also have a belief that every tennis player, just given that it's an individual sport, we have a better memory for our biggest moments. We also have a bigger ego for our biggest moments, but I think we have a better memory. So I want to do a little segment, a little trivia to test your knowledge of your own career, and I want to take our fans back 
to May 11th, 1992, through May 17th, 1992. I, I apologize for the graphic here, but I was not even a sperm cell inside my father at this point. I was not a thought. And I want to know, Coach, you know, you are the champion of that result. Do you remember who you played in the semifinals and finals? Well, this is so, uh, the hard-hitting questions now. This is more post-U.S. Open. Not, I know I, exactly. And it's, it's that hard. I actually have. Gee, I can't even. Where well, can you tell me where I was? You were in what Ant, You were in Antwerp, Belgium. That's my hint. And you were playing with a oh. fellow Australian. Oh, yeah. I was, well, I think I was. I, was, I reckon I, I think I was playing with uh, Andrew Cratchman. I think. Oh, I'm, I'm sad to tell you, Coach, that is incorrect. You were playing with a player whose last name is a color. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, okay, Brown. Yeah, yeah Michael Brown. With, uh, there he is. That's who you were playing with. Michael Brown, yeah. And uh, Yeah, I was just like a random. I was going all over the place. <laughs> Oh, I'm glad to hear. Well, just, you know, in the finals, you played Mike Pernfors and Chris Goosens. We had uh, Manny Diaz on earlier. I know Mike Pernfors is a, you know, a Georgia guy. So that, that's fascinating to me. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, any fond memories of your time on tour that you want to share? No. Nah, oh, look, it was, it was a bit of a blur. I mean, I remember, that, I remember, playing, uh, I remember playing being in Antwerp, actually, last, last trip before we were going home. We weren't going to play there, and, and we... we we virtually took it pretty easy. We were a bit wrecked. We've been, you know, the Australians, we generally travelled for long periods of time back then, uh, you know, and didn't bounce back and forth like they have the, the luxury of doing uh, these days. And so, and look, I was, I was a young kid in a, in a tennis world where I, did, I wasn't really, uh, you know, I was, I was making it up as I was going along. I first hit my first tennis ball when I was a 12-year-old, a 12-year-old kid for the first time. That was my first ever strike of a tennis ball. And, uh, at school, won a school little tournament, and you know, four years later, I qualified at the Aussie Open, in a, in a, you know, which is which is ridiculous and sort of out of. I wasn't in that. I, who knows? I didn't know what I was doing, uh, to be honest. And uh, yeah, but then I suffered. You know, I was in fifteen. I was at Nukes Tennis Ranch in New Braunfels, Texas, uh, for a year, which I loved, and um, and I just had to do things where my parents couldn't afford to pushed me through the tennis cycle, so I just had to do whatever I could do, and, you know, amazing, amazing life lessons, living in, you know, living in sort of bomb shelters for $5 a night instead of, uh, you know, through through Spain and, and eating the same meal, you know, every day of the week because I, it was the cheapest meal that I could <laughs> I could get and sometimes not stringing my, you know, not, not having my racket strung for, you know, trying to rotate them and not get them strung for weeks because I didn't want my parents to actually be able to pay for, Restrings so frequently, and so these are all. This is all courtesy of you know my parents trying to make uh, give me an opportunity, but me also not being the tennis, I suppose, in the main system because I was I hadn't gone through the system. So I was only it wasn't until I qualified at the Aussie Open where I was then uh, in an Australian team at the Australian Institute of Sport, and um, you know, but at that stage I was suffering some major spinal problems from my back. So the rest of my career was really often on the tennis court, not able to. Uh, really ignite what I wanted to do. So, so I've been driving myself into coaching and actually, you know, I've been on more centre courts than I ever would have as a tennis player. Uh, I've played in the biggest, you know, I've been, I've been involved in more of the biggest matches that I ever would have uh, been involved in. And I've uh, been lucky enough to use my sort of fueling and my 
passion for sort of, and my drive uh, internally to to give that to others. And actually, um, I think I'm more obsessive and uh, about the result of other people's success and uh, than mine, which is which has sort of been an asset to my to my coaching. I think, and uh, I've loved I've loved every minute you know, of the journey. Well, look, being ranked a uh, high of 192 is still something to be proud of. And obviously, coaching guys like Hewitt, Monfils, Sanga, and Dimitrov is, you know, a, a huge testament to your skill and your coaching ability. And, uh, and, and Coach Rashid, I hope I can call you that. It just sounds natural to me. Um, we got one more question for you. No, it's very, very, very American, that. So I'll go over that. <laughs> I was going to say, Coach, do you think Roger Fetter took the, hey, Roger, from you? Is it now always your Coach Rashid? No, yeah, well, I, I, I like Coach Rashid. I'm, I'm like, I might like that somewhere on my on the in, on the back of my top screen. Small, real small print because my daughter would uh, daughter would think I'm, I'm being uh, I'm bragging, and she doesn't like that. She says, "Dad, stay under." She, she, she's eleven and says, "Dad, Dad, stay understated, will you?" And I said, "I am, darling. Don't worry. It's okay." Uh, so, so no, look, uh, I mean, and I like I like the uh, I like all the philosophy. As, as with the tennis has been. It's an amazing vehicle, amazing outcomes. We see so many different characters on the tour, both men and women. Uh, we're seeing some interesting, uh, you know, some different playing styles. I think we need to be a bit more creative in the way we actually teach young kids to play. I love the college level of the US. I think there's another level that that could be taken to as well. I think there could be another level of professionalism thrown on, onto, into, into that space, uh, which would also give some of those kids uh, that are going there potentially wanting a professional career, but then deciding on a collegiate career, career, I think you could also give them opportunities through the college system to actually have a second wind and actually a second belief that they could actually be a, you know, be that sort of professional tennis player. So um, I think sometimes a dream sort of shut down and there's a real space to keep that alive, I think, through through a great college system, which you guys, are, you guys have over there. Well, we, we really appreciate that. And obviously you really do care about the kids and uh, we're hoping you could just talk to us a little bit about the inspiration for your foundation. Just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, I mean, I, one, one thing's about to be at the top of the top of the sport and, and be, um, you know, it's, it's been lucky enough to have the privilege of living at the top end of it and breathing it and being on that big course. And, you know, you've got to remember a lot of people don't actually get that opportunity. Uh, even though they're travelling on the tennis tour, it's always sort of uh, depending on who who they're actually coaching. So there are different levels in that space. So I appreciate um, the opportunities that I've been given, and you've got to be, you know, you've got to actually have some substance to actually have some sustainability at that level, obviously. But and then then when I see that, I also see the the extreme uh, the kids that never get opportunities at all, and there and we've we've got we can't be blinded by young kids that are born today and that, that never get to touch sport at any level where, and, and never, you know, in extreme disadvantaged communities, kids don't get to own anything. They don't get a, a ball, a soccer ball, a baseball mitt, um, a tennis racket, anything like that because they're not privy to having the availability of it. Their, their parents are third and fourth generation unemployment. So my, my idea was that, you know, I needed to, needed to change the, the, the language, the, the voices there, the culture. The only way you can do that, you're not going to do that with, with parents because obviously they're already sort of well invested into their cycle. But the young kids, um, you know, they're just a sponge of information. They're following the lead. And um, so I want to try and change the, the, the floor plan and the flight path of these young kids and start using the medicine as support. So I go into extreme communities 
look at their look at the community that's trying to do some good, and then we 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 develop the sporting infrastructure. We just build open space parks, uh, but with those open space uh, parks, we activate it with sport completely, and um, not just green grass and uh, a few play bits of play equipment for the kids. So we've got tennis courts, ovals, running tracks, all those little things, and and the size of the parks can vary. Um, and, and then we just put coaching in there three or four times a week. So free for the kids, free product, free coaching, uh, professional coaches and mentoring through that system. And then we try and activate them and progress them through the club level as well. So all of a sudden their whole life cycle and their pathways change completely through the medicine of sport. And as you guys know, once you're involved in sport and you're involved in you know, different types of um, energy there and also people then you get involved in clubs and, and that takes another level as well and it's a great uh, it's a great tool and a positioning tool for these kids that have generally wake up and by the time they're six and seven they work out there's a ceiling on their life um, and they're not the kid that runs around and sees blue sky they see a ceiling and, and we you know that just that's not acceptable in my mind so I think uh, to make change at the, at the real basement is fantastic. Absolutely, and, and look, what you're doing with your foundation is fantastic, and we definitely need more groups and organizations like that, so we thank you, and we also want to be cognizant of your time and appreciate all the insight you've given us so far, but we do have one last question for you, and we always ask it, we are Cracked Rackets, we want to know when the last time you cracked a racket was, or if you have any great stories of a time where you did. Jeez, how long you got? Um... <laughs> That I was a, you know, I was an interesting kid because I played. I'm an ultra competitive personally. Not, not my parents never played sport. I played Aussie rules football and then played as I said, played tennis at 12. When you play an individual sport and you know, all of a sudden I was playing tournaments and and all that sort of thing. And I, I'm very hard on myself about being good and being perfectionist. And even though I'd only just started playing tennis, I needed to be good early. And by 14, 15, I was, you know, I was, I was getting sponsorship and by Dunlop, and they had the Dunlop Max Ply and the Dunlop Fort, and and I was, I would just naturally bounce it on the ground because I was hacked off with the shot that I thought I should hit at 100 miles an hour near the near the outside of the line and hit it perfectly with 1% margin error. Don't we all? And, and, when, and when, yeah, exactly like the the. Uh, and I, so I would crack these things, and they would just do hairline cracks and get bigger and bigger. And I had three rackets a year always. Uh, that was the sponsorship here in Australia, three rackets a year. And after that, you paid a certain price, wholesale price. My dad, at one point, he just got to the point, you know, and I, I could, you know, I could might do one or two in a weekend. And so my dad said, well, that's it. We're not actually buying any more rackets. So you've actually got to. So I was super gluing. Uh, I was going to a hardware shop and a, and a homeware shop and getting super glue and super gluing all my rackets. No way. And uh, oh, I reckon I, I, think, I think I've still got about 10 of them, these done off Maxpies. We'd glue all over them and trying to hold them together. And they, you know, the restrings would then have to be these super soft <laughs> restrings. And then we, then we obviously moved to graphite racket, and that took another level because I could actually throw that. I could actually, I had to use more force to smash that. <laughs> so, so I went through my. The fish, let's say I went through my fair share of rackets, uh, no doubt about that. But I got to the I got to the point where I worked out that hey, this is I'm probably not doing myself any favours on the court. Yeah. Uh, I, I think my yeah, so, so, I, so look, I have a I have a history. I like the crack rackets. 
um, and uh, but I would never pass it on. Okay. Well, look, we we talked a little bit earlier about wanting to have a discussion in the future about whether you know letting your anger out on court is a good thing. So we'll, we'll definitely have to bring you back for that conversation. But thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today. No worries, guys. Really appreciate it, and uh, and have a good evening. The father didn't stop now, and not a friend of anything. Go take on a kill, then he won't have been so powerful. The chip at you, I read your skin of everything is confusing. You will be good, but you will be good.